0: At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.
1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Bad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people who make friends are trying to make some money. My job not just to entertain, educate, teach. Call me. 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at you, Kramer. You might not know it from the averages. Dow gaining 74 points. S&P inching up 0.03%. NASDAQ losing 0.04%. But this market's experiencing a coup d'etat. The former leaders of secular growth stocks are being guillotined as the action in the bond market signals that the economy's improving. So we don't need those kinds of stocks anymore. (laughs) Remember how this all works. The market's constantly trying to predict the future. takes all sorts of inputs and aggregates them, makes up its mind. And now it's decided that business will be fine. So the consistent growers are out and the cyclicals are in. That's right. The companies that can deliver big numbers when the economy's in good shape, they're back. Uh, There's just one problem. The random set of inputs and outputs is missing a very key ingredient, emotion. If you want to be a successful investor, you need to check your emotions at the door. And right now, that's not happening. Let me show you what I mean. Once you take a stock, let's pick a stock that we all know, Merck. For the longest time, we used to call this St. Merck. It was the number one pharmaceutical in the world with the best R&D. Then amazingly, Merck spent almost two decades lost in the wilderness, kind of doing nothing losing its sainthood status for certain. Or at least that was the case until Merck discovered Keytruda, perhaps the most important cancer treatment in ages, maybe in history. It's done more than $10 billion in sales, mostly lung cancer, but it's in trials for many other types of tumors. The strength of Keytruda breathed new life in Merck's stock. It bought from 73 in April to $87 at its highest just a couple of weeks ago. Yet now Merck has dropped five bucks in just two days, with the darn thing coming back down to 81. Hey, by the way, at its hideous lows today, it was down nearly $10 from last Friday. $10. How the heck did that happen? First, did anything negative occur at Merck when it comes to, let's say, its pipeline, its portfolio? No, nothing, nada. If anything, a couple of their potential rivals in the anti-cancer space, Amgen and Eli Lilly, produced suboptimal results in some papers that released just this very weekend. When we look at the drug stocks, we have to start thinking about pricing. Did any politician running for president have anything new to say about pricing? No, all quiet on the pricing front. So what caused the downturn? The rotation. I think it's the rotation out of stocks that thrive in a slowing economy and into stocks that thrive in an accelerating economy. Think about it. What kicked off this data of Merck stock? Well, let's see. It was from last Wednesday. What happened then? We got a weaker non-farm payroll number, a number that made it clear that the Federal Reserve has plenty of room to cut interest rates without looking like they're bowing to presidential pressure. And what happens when the Fed cuts rates? Well, the economy's going to get stronger. And if the economy picks up steam, stocks like Merck awesome way to become less attractive. So money managers sell these secular growth names and they swap into the cyclicals that can deliver huge upside surprises when commerce picks up. In other words, Merck's going out of style on that Wall Street fashion show I always talk about. It is Fashion Week, right? So we're talking fashion show. Yep, Merck's not going to benefit from the expected rate cut, so the stock has lost its appeal for now. Hey, I get that playbook I used to live and die by it, my old hedge fund. But if you're factoring in the emotional component, then you're not doing it right. This morning, Merck's stock was in free fall. At one point, it was down $4.62, or 5.5%. People, that's ridiculous. What happened? I think there were, honestly, investors saw the rotation, and they panicked because they figured something had to be wrong with the underlying company. I always said no one ever made a dime panicking. And once again, Merck proved me right. As the stock rebounded hard from its lows. You want to know why? Because in the span of two days, Merck went from a somewhat expensive growth stock to relatively cheap stock with almost a three percent yield. Given that the company's got a strong balance sheet and a thirty-year treasury is paying only two point two one percent, I think buying Merck at seventy-eight is an easy call. I expect, since uh, especially because I expect key trader to keep growing for years and years. I want you to think of Merck as a, a bond with upside. So buyers came in in the stock bottom. I fully expect that that 78 bottom will hold. But even if it doesn't, Merck just keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as it goes lower. The only thing that might really hurt them, if Elizabeth Warren, an early leader in the polls, wins the Democratic primary, she won single payer. Although for the moment, Joe status quo, Biden's still in the lead. And he's not going to do anything to seriously damage the pharmaceutical industry. Now, it's not just slow and steady growers like Merck, who are also seeing the same process as some of the highest flying growth stocks, they order. For example, I mean one of my absolute favorite companies. You know that for Freida, the great CEO, this is the best of the consumer packaged good stocks. It got slammed for no reason whatsoever. Uh, Say that it got too expensive versus its own trading range, its own history. Same exact story with Mastercard, Ma and Visa. These companies are two of the best of the financial technology space, another classic secular growth industry. They're momentum stocks. Yes, momentum. And that was beloved by portfolio managers who needed to show some exposure to the financial sector, but didn't want the risk of owning any banks. Both Visa and MasterCard got pulverized today. On the other hand, investors are itching to buy cyclicals, companies that win in a stronger economy. They think something like Citigroup is a cyclical, with cheapest of the bank stocks near 3% yield. How powerful is this rotation? Just as Citi stock is having a nice run, City, the actual company, was telling a story yesterday about declining trading, uh, declining fixed income, declining commodities, declining currency, and declining equities trading. I mean, I think the stock would have been obliterated if not for the huge tailwinds, getting from the rotation. It would have been a, a flip it. It would have been the exact opposite. Finally, there's a tale of two retailers, Macy's and Costco. Macy's is believed to be doing quite badly. So badly, if something doesn't change soon, it, like a radical improvement uh, in the economy that gets shoppers back to the mall, and I know that's hard to imagine, well, the company may have to, people feel, though this is the market saying it, it's not the company, might have to cut its dividend, which currently yields 9%. Of course, if you think business is about to improve, uh, thanks to the Fed, then Macy's looks enticing trading at six times this year's earnings. Costco, on the other hand, gets a huge chunk of its sales from membership fees. It's a steady stream of recurring revenue that's impervious to economic downturns. They also got amazingly and consistently high same store sales. When the going gets tough, the tough shop at Costco. But with the stock trading at 36 times this year's earnings, that consistency only gives you comfort if you believe the economy is actually slowing. Otherwise, the price of multiple, it's too pricey. Now, what do you do with this kind of action at home? Do you try to anticipate all these different rotations? No! I think you need to view it as an opportunity to get in, not get out. If a high-quality stock is down enough, like Merck was this morning, then that's your chance to pounce. If a stock rallies to the point of absurdity relative to its own historic valuation, like Merck did maybe before the big decline, uh, not to mention MasterCard and Costco, you got my permission to trim a little, but only if you can't handle a hammering. Good investors can. The bottom line. You know what really matters at the end of the day? The quality of the company. Merck, Costco, MasterCard, and Visa are the best of the best. City and Macy's, they're cheap, but maybe they deserve to be cheap. So if this market wants to toss out high-quality merchandise, let their trash be your treasure. Gregory in New York, Gregory. Hi, is Jim there, please? Jim? You got Jim. What's up? Jim, how are you? Um, I was wondering about Lumba Liquidator. It seemed to bottom out at 8. It topped out at 13 today. The speculation that there's, uh, they're going to go private. Uh, what can you tell me? Well, and a lot of these retailers have been reluctant to go private because the ones that have have really been disastrous. Uh, I like to buy Best of Breed, and I think that you can buy Home Depot or the big turn in lows that Marvin Ellison's leading. I like that. I wish Marvin would come on because the turn's real. Let's go to Austin in Kansas. Austin. Jimmy boy. Yeah. I was looking for some Chinese stock that should have limited impact from the trade war and came across Alibaba. Any thoughts on the company? The only now one worth got. buying. The only, only one worth buying. It's got real U.S. Okay. financials and it's doing quite well. It's a gigantic company and I will bless it. I've alternately blessed and not blessed. But right now, I've got to tell you, it's just too cheap after the numbers that, that I've seen. Lynn in Michigan. Lynn. Hi, right, Jim. Hey, Jim, I admire your work ethic and the long hours that you put in, sir. Thank you, buddy. My I question, sure do try. My question is about Bud. Uh,
0: what do we do with this stock? Uh, can it get back on track to what it once was? Does uh, micro-brew trend, is it really holding it down?
1: Um, no, what's holding it down is that just, it just doesn't have great growth. And uh, I just, I, I think that what's happened is it's been consistent, though. And the consistency has allowed the stock go up. So I don't mind but I, I just think that it's not a, um, at this price, Coca-Cola is actually cheaper. And my Chapel Trust owns PepsiCo. We'll be talking about that in my Thursday conference call with club members. I like PepsiCo. I hope it comes down more and can buy something. Investors are itching for something that fits the new image of a stock that could gain when the economy grows. And the quality of the company is what matters. Oh, man, tonight, as this market seesaws back and forth, wondering what's next for gold and treasuries? I'm tackling the tech to find out, and boy, are they eye-opening Then What do you do when a talented hedge fund starts pushing for major changes at an iconic American company? I'm giving you my game plan when it comes to AT&T. And VMware's been very busy over the past few weeks announcing a couple acquisitions, and people didn't like them. Did investors overreact? Hey, why don't we speak with the company's COO and find out? Stay with Kramer.
0: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to at com, or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokered Services, member NYSE SIPC.
1: four or five months while the stock markets rapidly seesawed back and forth, we've seen a massive flight to safety in other asset classes. When the future is uncertain, investors flock to anything with a reputation for safety. Anything that typically thrives in times of economic weakness or turmoil. And that's why money is poured into government bonds. Not just here, but all around the globe. Pushing prices up yields down. Treasuries are a textbook safe haven, right? I mean, they're risk-free. It's why the price of gold has soared, too. The precious metal is a classic hard asset that retains its value when commerce is going to hell in a handbasket. I always like to recommend owning Barrick Gold as a kind of insurance policy for the rest of your portfolio. I like Agnico Equal, by the way, too. But I, I do that for precisely the same chaos reasons. However, after these mammoth runs, i got to wonder, are these flight-to-safety assets still... Uh safe? Tonight we're going off the charts trying to answer that question with the help of Carly Garner. She's a, ooh, yeah, ooh, right back at you. She's a brilliant technician, who's the co-founder of Carly Trading, and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. Her view, there are no safe places. As a matter of fact, there's no safety in the safe havens. Garner's got a terrific track record, so when she takes a contrarian position like this, I've got to take notice. Let me walk you through a reason. One of the biggest mistakes investors frequently make is that we tend to react retroactively rather than proactively. I try to teach you these lessons because they're so important and contrary to the way you may be behaving. When we respond to the past rather than the anticipating the future, well, that's a big mistake. As a result, Gordon points out that people often find themselves buying safety assets like gold and treasury bonds when they panic. They buy when they feel compelled to, instead of buying opportunistically and waiting for better prices. When there's enough fear... When gold and treasury prices have been pushed up too high, the safe havens become downright risky. And that's where Garner thinks we are right now. Gold and treasuries could be vulnerable to significant declines, she believes, as the buying dries up and people who got in at lower levels, they start doing ka-ching, ka-ching, Let's start with benchmark 10-year U.S. treasury notes. Between overseas buyers chasing yield and domestic buyers seeking safety from a totally theoretical recession. By the way, money flowing out of the stock market and the bonds is just amazing. Garner believes that the tenure has reached what she thinks is unsustainable levels. Take a look at the seasonal chart showing historical trends in the 10-year Treasury future, okay? It's five years. According to Moore Research Center Incorporated, or MRCI, for the past five years, the tenure has struggled to hold gains beyond the September futures contract. First notice day which is generally in the last week of August. From there, the 10-year tends to experience a major decline in price. Sure enough, that's exactly what we've been starting to see over the past week. It has a lot to do with the rotation I talked about at the top of the show. How about longer-term treasuries? All right, check out the monthly chart of the TLT, which is iShares 20-plus-year Treasury ETF. This is the one that everybody talks about. It's the one that's on a lot of people's screens. Longer-term treasury bonds basically ran to a brick wall last week with the TLT reversing course after surging up to test the ceiling of resistance that goes all the way back to the Great Recession. Rather remarkable, isn't it? You just see that? Remember, we always think that the charts tell us, like, polygraph tests. Just as that happened, the relative strength index, which is down here, right, important momentum index, poked above 70 for only the third time since the financial crisis. I mean, come on. This is extreme. On three other occasions, the RSI came close to 70. Why does Carter bring this up? Because when you look at the last five times this happened, they led to dramatic sell-offs in long-term treasuries. Time after time, it's just been brutal. Now, maybe this time is different. Anything's Possible. But Garner thinks the balance of probabilities is against it. In short, she's saying that the odds of U.S. Treasury prices holding these levels are slim. The odds of Treasuries going higher? Dismal. Which brings us to the other big safe haven asset. Let's talk gold, please. After being stuck in a narrow trading range for years, in June, the precious metal finally broke out to the upside thanks to relentless barrage of negative headlines about the broader economy and kind of general worldwide craziness. Once that happened, disappointed short sellers quickly covered their positions, buying gold futures to close out their trades, which pushed prices to new heights. Then FOMO kicked in. That's right, fear of missing out. As investors who'd given up on gold scrambled to get back in. That's what you get there. Four months ago, the precious metal was selling for $1,285. That's announced. Now it's just under $1,500. And Garner thinks right here, right now, running out of mojo. Her reasoning. Take a gander at this weekly chart of gold futures, which includes the Commitment of Traders report from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the COT report. Every week, the CFTC releases data that tells you what large speculators, and that way, I mean money managers, small speculators, and commercial hedgers are doing with their futures positions. And Garner relies on this data to gauge whether the big money's gotten too bullish or too bearish. So what does it say about the precious metal right now? According to the most recent stats, there are roughly, here we go, 300,000 net long positions in gold futures held by large speculators. Garner points out that gold tends to peak at precisely those levels. The problem is that when you get too many bulls, you end up with a situation where there's no one left to buy, right? Which creates a vacuum where prices tend to collapse. For example, the all-time high net long position was around 316,000 contracts mid-2016. And that preceded a massive meltdown. Gold filing falling from 1,380 to 1,120 as the overcrowded trade unwound itself. Brutal. Stocks really got crushed, too. Put uh, these figures in perspective, even during the 2011 metals bubble, large speculators were holding somewhere between 240,000 and 250,000 net loan contracts. So we're already well beyond that level of bullishness, and Gardner thinks that's very bad news for gold. She suspects that buyers are already running out of ammo. How about the monthly chart of the gold futures? Here's what you, what you see here is a little confusing. I know we're going to go over it. It's a market that had been relatively sluggish for years. All right, we see that, right? It's kind of doing nothing until the recent run. Even this big move is minuscule compared to the gigantic gold rally we had during the financial crisis. When investors were buying precious metals hand over fist. Of course, there's a good reason for that. We don't have a financial crisis. We probably aren't even going near having a normal recession, at least not anytime soon. As Garner sees it, gold is a ceiling of resistance at 1560. If that ceiling holds, she expects prices to drift back down to the low end of the trading range with a floor of 1260 as support. Why? Well, that's because of the Relative Strength Index, or the RSI. This key indicator has broken out above 70. For the first time since the financial crisis, suggesting that gold has gotten way overbought. Maybe it's come up too far too fast. Garner points out that in most markets, reaching overbought levels is usually the beginning of the end for a rally. That said, let's say she's wrong, okay? The economy really is headed for recession sometime next soon or some chaos happens. Then Garner thinks it could go to 1800. She doubts that that's going to happen. The bottom line. For months, investors have been moving their money into safe haven assets like treasury bonds and gold but they've now run up dramatically. And the charts, as interpreted by the always astute Carly Garner, suggested it's time for both bond prices and gold prices to come down, perhaps come down hard. Stick
0: Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I don't have any idea what you're asking so there was a peak.
1: Malone is part of what? Now, remember when Malone, when you, you were. You changing this off from Apple know, no, I I was I kind to was trying to praise you. you make oh, it's so hard to praise <laughs> yourself.
0: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. I've
1: got a question a lot of people have been asking me. What do you do when a talented activist hedge fund starts pushing for major changes at an iconic American company? With a terrible stock. If it's Elliott Management agitating for a more disciplined approach for value creation, know what I say? I say you buy ATT. Last time at the top of the show, I mentioned Elliott's latest activist bid. They took a major position in ATT, and now they're trying to convince management to make a series of moves that would transform this tarnished, let's just say, guard into something that's more attractive to big institutional investors. But because ATT is such a huge household name, not to mention a stock that many of you own for that juicy dividend, we're going to circle back to the story. It's too big. You know, a lot of times what happens is you have a story and it goes that one day and then people forget about it. Uh-uh, not that for you. You, need, you deserve better. See, if everything goes right here, the upside potential is just too good to ignore and too good for me to just gloss over. If Elliot somehow fails anyway... I think the risk is minimal. Why? 5.5% yield. Bountiful. So, first, let me set the stage. Ever since Randall Stevenson took over as at CEO in 2007, he's worked tirelessly to transform this company from a straightforward telco provider into something more diversified, a telco provider slash media conglomerate. Stevenson made a series of acquisitions, snapping up DirecTV in 2015, then devouring Time Warner last summer in a mammoth $109 billion deal. at took on an enormous amount of debt to fund those purchases, though, And so far, to be honest, they really haven't paid off. Sure, the company's been transformed, but the stock is still stuck in the 30s, where it's been for ages. Get this. In 2012, AT&T traded at 34. Now it's at 37. (laughs) Yeah, it's up three bucks, not even 10% in seven years. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 is up more than 100% over the same period. Underperformance. The problem: Wall Street has lost faith in management's vision. Too many failures, too many missteps, too many missed opportunities. These days, most of ATT's shareholders are individual investors, home gamers like you, who like the stock because it's a household name with a bountiful dividend. There's very little institutional ownership. One of the few, of the big cap stock, the second fewest. Meaning, most hedge funds and mutual funds just don't want to go near this darn thing. If you could get these money managers back on board, the buy they're buying would send this stock much higher, and that's where Elliot comes in—a catalyst, Elliot. Yesterday morning, the activist firm, led by the legendary slash notorious Paul Singer, I would get rid of the notorious, I just like the guy, announced that it had taken a $3.2 billion stake in AT&T and released a public letter to the company's board of directors. It wasn't rancorous, but I don't want to bury the lead. Right on page one, Elliot says they have a plan to get AT&T stock to 60 bucks within the next two and a half years for a 65% gain versus where it closed on Friday night. How? All right. I'm going to walk you through it because you have to understand the argument. If the plan on if if you're going to buy the stock, you can't just mindlessly piggyback off of Elliott's homework. As much as I like his homework, you deserve better. So do they. First, they point out AT&T's long-term underperformance. Stock lagging the S&P by 114 percentage points over the last decade, even when you include dividends. It's lagged Verizon, its competitor, by 88 percent over the same period. Ouch. Second, Elliott explains their take on what's driving that underperformance. After Ma Bell was broken up in 1984, the company that became AT&T, that was the old Southwestern Bell, grew by acquiring other phone companies. It was a fabulous strategy that made shareholders a fortune. But in 2011, this strategy hit a wall. AT&T tried to buy T-Mobile in a blatantly anti-competitive deal. When the regulators blocked it, they had to pay T-Mobile the largest breakup fee of all time, $4 billion, which helped turn this one sleepy wireless company into the fierce competitor, we know it as today. If that failed deal was bad, Elliot argues that the successful ones, even worse. In 2015, AT&T spent $67 billion to buy DTV, DirecTV. <laughs> That's a satellite television service making itself the largest pay TV com- company in America. Unfortunately, they did it right at the absolute peak of the traditional pay TV biz. And DirecTV has been a total dog ever since then. And by the way, the technology is not even any good. I mean, it's way behind the times. Then a few years ago, AT&T decided to buy Time Warner for $109 billion in a deal that closed last summer. Why acquire a gigantic media conglomerate? As Elliot points out, quote, AT&T has yet to articulate a clear strategic rationale for why AT&T Needs to own eight time winner. Very true. Now, Elliot contends that expanding into these new businesses caused distractions that have contributed to the company's recent operational underperformance. That may be one reason why at t Wireless has been losing market share for years. Put it all together and they say AT&T is too big and too complicated to manage, as is, well, it's an old-school conglomerate in a world where Wall Street loves breakups. So what's the plan? Let's go over it. Okay, Elliot wants AT&T to become more focused by selling off non-core assets, improving operational efficiency, paying down debt, and bringing in better leadership. They want to consider the company to consider selling any assets to do not have a clear strategic rationale for being part of AT&T. That includes DirecTV, the wireline business, and a bunch of media properties. They also want AT&T to bring in outside consultants to review its operations in order to figure out how to eliminate inefficiencies and boost margins. They want the company to stop making major acquisitions, protect the dividend, and pay down debt while also buying back stock. It's actually cheaper to buy back stock given the dividend size. In the letter itself, Elliott didn't call for the head of Randall Stevenson or for his team to step down, but they did say, quote, the success of this plan is predicated upon having the right team in place to execute and oversee it, end quote. And I'm hearing that they want both Stevenson and his chosen successor gone. Given that Stevenson is widely expected to retire soon, well, that could be an easy way for the to bow out, right? Hand the reins to someone else, kind of, hey, no harm, no foul. With all these plans in place, Elliott believes AT&T can earn $4.80 per share in 2022, which is $1 above the current consensus. Say the current, let's start, let's do the math. Say the stock trades at 12 times earnings. Seems reasonable if they can deliver a real earnings acceleration with win back Wall Street's trust. Then you get a $55 share price. Throw in the $5.50 per share in cumulative dividends over that period, and that's how you get to 60 bucks. I think these Elliott guys are smart. They work hard to get to know their targets. They have enough resources to work with the best people. They got three bill invested and a little bit more, actually, and they've relentlessly Focus on creating value. That's why they've got such a fabulous track record. So let me tell you what I hope will happen. I hope ATT chooses to work with them, just like eBay did earlier this year. eBay went from 28 to 40. If you're a board of director uh, member looking to create value, bring Elliot in. If that happens, I could see ATT stock going much higher. And if Elliot doesn't get the way, this kind of activist investment involvement tends to light a fire to management. Bottom line, ATT is a cheap stock, trading at less than 10 times next year's earnings. 5.5% yield that I believe is safe. And now, finally, thanks, Elliot, a uh, catalyst. That's why I think you should be buying the stock. I bet the upside is huge, even with just a wee, wee little bit of improvement. Let's talk to Ann in Indiana. Ann. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, my, pre- wanted, my pleasure, Ann. Wanted to check in about Marvell Technologies because
0: there was an article in the Wall Street this weekend that while America was ahead, Currently, with 4G, that allegedly China
1: already has 15 times the number of towers right. built for 5G. So I wanted to get your feedback. No, I, look, Marvell's the number one way to play 5G. It just is. They've, re- they've rejiggered the entire company, and they have created so that every single a- asset is really revert toward 5G. They got rid of a lot of commodity stuff. It is just my charitable trust owns it, and I'd be a buyer right here, right now. Jack in Arizona. Jack! Booyah, Jim! How you doing? I am doing well, Jack. How about you? I'm
2: doing great. Hey, my question has to do with the T-Mobile Sprint merger. Yes. Yeah. So I am a big T-Mobile fan. I think John Legere is a great CEO. He is. And and uh, I've been buying Sprint stock like crazy because uh, the looks like the merge is what nine point seven five to one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But. Sprint's at $6.87, T-Mobile's at 78 bucks. It looks like there's free money in there. What risk am I not calculating? Well, see, I
1: know. I never think there's free money when there's that kind of spread. I think there's risk. I am not an arbitrageur, so I have to know what I know and what I don't know. The ARBs figure that out. I like T-Mobile for the same reason you do, John Leisure. I think it's the real deal. But do not hang up the phone on AT&T. I think the stock is a screaming buy because Elliot's in there making something happen. That's more mad money. The Mware may be driving autos, retail, and healthcare to greater heights, but can the cloud play also drive your portfolio higher with containers? Then I believe the children of the future. I'm going to tell you why it's time to focus on the millennials. They're not so crazy. We'll figure them out together. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We've seen all sorts of turmoil in the high-flying cloud stocks for the past few days. Some of these names have come down hard what about the not-so-high-flying cloud stocks? Look at VMware, the virtualization software pioneer in Kramer Cloud King, that allows data centers to run multiple virtual machines in a single server. And that's become a major player in the cloud infrastructure space and on the border. VMware has been doing just fine for the past week, maybe because maybe the stock had been crushed last month. Remember, this company's subsidiary of Dell reported a fantastic quarter in late August. Fantastic. But there was one major fly in the ointment. We learned that VMware would be making two acquisitions, not one but two Pivotal Software and another Subsidiary and Carbon Black, a cloud native security play. The deals weren't even that big. They were paying $3.6 billion for Pivotal, $2.1 billion for Carbon Black. Didn't matter. Investors and analysts alike found the deals questionable in value and the stock got clobbered, sinking to 128 at its lows last month, down from 180 near the end of July. However, in the past couple of weeks, VMware's begun to bounce. Stock back up over, up to 153 after a terrific almost six buck gain today. I told you at the time that the negative reaction was way overblown. Is Wall Street finally coming to the same conclusion? Let's take a closer look with Sanjay Putin. He's VMware's chief operating officer for customer operations to get a better sense of these so-called controversial deals and what they mean for his company. Mr. Putin, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank Good you, to see you, Sanjay. Have a seat. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Now, there I see. Okay, why I why don't we just start with Corbin Black? There let's we go. Start.
2: And my pivotal socks.
1: Pivotal socks. Okay, well, let's start with these because we know that the quarter was fine. We can address that later because I thought it was a, an excellent quarter. People were baffled that you could do two acquisitions at once, why one company could do, could even handle that. And why you pick these companies. I think if you, the, the stock is saying that maybe there's more to it than that. You can walk us through.
2: Yeah, let's walk through them one at a time. Okay. When you look at these types of transformational moments going on in digital transformation, these happen once every 10, 20 years. VMware is the company that invented the virtual machine. And for the last 20 years, we've created a million jobs in that part of infrastructure. There is a movement going on in digital transformation right now called Containers. And we believe it's our birthright to own that movement because there'll be potentially tens of millions of jobs among developers created on top of this virtual machine. Think of the virtual machine sort of like the ship and containers like the things on top of the ship. I was going to say,
1: is that the good analogy? That's the
2: right one. The 1950s containers completely transformed ships. VMware created the ship, and now these containers are going to allow apps to be fundamentally transformed. We found as we thought about this that this was the right time to do it, and it was our birthright to do it better than anybody else. Why not take those 3,000 people from Pivotal, 750 million in revenue, and turbocharge the next 10 years of VMware, not just in virtual machines and virtualization and the path to the cloud, which is the first C, Mm-hmm. But the other C is containers. And we think that's a big part. And we'll get to security later. Okay, but now, that's now Pivotal, Pivotal. Had,
1: lately, had not done one well in the stock market. Has something changed to make it so it's more valuable? Or is it the merger with VMware that creates
2: the Two things. One is they've refactored their product, now sit completely on this word Kubernetes. Okay. If you don't know what it is, it's a, sort of the big open source container movement. And the go-to-market engine probably stuttered a little bit. But that's what VMware does well. We're a go-to-market machine. Go we'll bring them in. And accelerate this to our 500,000 customers. So we feel good. When we get a good product in the hands of a good go-to-market machine, I think we can accelerate. And, and that's when what we you
1: know. say we, I mean, actually, you're going to be doing that. You're captaining this,
2: right? Well, listen, VMware, It's the, no one person does it. Right. It that's takes fair. the villages to do it. Right. But also our partners, our partners like Dell. Mm-hmm. And the ecosystem, VMware has 75,000 partners, Jim, who love us. We're gonna take this to those ecosystem partners. We have a big tent, system integrators. They're excited about this. We branded the entire thing. That's the other thing we've done pretty well. Tanzu, which is the Japanese word for containers. We're doing big ads in New York, San Francisco, London airport, a play on the word VMware that says containerware. We're not changing the name of the company, but we're going big in containers. And that's the key message I want your viewers to take. Away.
1: Okay, a crowded area right now is cyber. Is security. okay? Cloud security. You're wearing a T-shirt of a company that a lot of people in the analyst call said, geez, why carbon black? As Zscaler tonight uh, did say the business has gotten a little soft versus projections, why do, does your great company need a part, why why not just partner with a security company why do you have to own one
2: well listen fundamentally we have a bigger plan in security and let me just walk you through okay, a quick understanding of the strategy there's a lot of parallels between security and healthcare my mom's a doctor imagine you went to a doctor jim and you asked her how do you get well and she said you have to eat five thousand tablets eating one every thirty seconds would take you a couple of weeks to do that that's what the security industry is today five thousand vendors broken lots of different agents that bloated on people's laptops uh, lots of alerts showing up, manual labor. So we look at this and say there's a fundamental new way to do it, which is to make security intrinsic into your diet. You eat your vegetables, your fruit, you drink your water, brush your teeth, and that's what we're doing in security is making it part of our platform. So we've been doing very well in network security okay. around the NSX product. But endpoint security and workload security, we had we didn't have much there. We had Workspace ONE, our AirWatch-related product, and we found as many of these endpoint security players were you know, kind of a little bit turmoil. Symantec got bought by Broadcom. McAfee got bought by Intel and spun out again. We felt it was the perfect time for us to come out with a disruptive play that was based on big data, AI, was cloud native, and there's only two companies doing it, CrowdStrike and Carbon Black. We felt this company was better integrated to us, had as good a product or better. Okay. Okay. one was also good for right. us, as you it could sure understand. it was. And we acquired, we intend to acquire them. The acquisition one is closed. We have a plan to integrate this and make it intrinsic in a way that nobody else will do. And we lay that out in VMworld. We think this will transform the security industry that's been broken today.
1: Well, that's our plan. I, I, I now understand it. I needed to hear it from you. In the meantime, you always come with a lesson. Uh, this time you have a music lesson about business that I think a lot of people want to
2: hear. Listen, I think in general, much has been talked about STEM. Science, technology, um, engineering, math. I think you can add an A into that and call it STEAM because arts is really important. And I think when you can bring music and arts, one of the gifts I have as a jazz pianist is making things simple. So sometimes I'll bring music into the middle of a keynote. If you watch on YouTube, I've done this a couple of different times. And it's just a way most keynotes are boring and death by PowerPoint. yes. Why not add a little music into it? And sometimes when I start the keynote this way, people are stunned by it, and that's how we want to make this lively, entertaining, and there's often a little bit of an artistic message that you can play in that at the core of every song is a beautiful melody that goes round and round, and that's that's what business is all about. Well,
1: I am grateful for you coming in and speaking English about why these acquisitions are good, and also I think your Ray Charles music, let me just say your piano, as good as why the band. Absolutely. I know. Okay, that's Sanjay Poonen, VMware's Chief Operating Officer. I hope you understand now. I think it helps me tremendously about why Carbon Black, why Pivotal, and why not buy VMware, simply because it is really down. Mad Money's back after the break.
0: Here's Link getting pumped for Mad Money.
1: That kid's got horror sense. Thank you to Michael and Megan in Virginia for sharing that very cute video of Mad Money's biggest but smallest fan. Hey, we love to hear from you, Great America. So keep these kind of videos and tweets coming. I love it. And now it is time. It is time for the lightning round. for And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skid Daddy? Time for the lightning round because we're going to start with Michael in Virginia. Michael.
2: Booyah, Jim. Calling about Planet Fitness. I started buying at uh, $67. it has been going down pretty fast. Just trying to figure out what the strategy is going forward. It
1: it is going down pretty fast. And I've got to tell you that I think it's still a great secular trend. But I understand that it's in a downturn. So let's be careful. Buy it slowly. But I do think that we're nearing a bottom in that stock. Let's go to Bo in Florida. Bo! Booyah, Jimmy. My uh, question is about Pay signs. They've got a 50%
2: year-over-year sales growth, no debt, and a great flow. What do you think?
1: But it, payment processing remains a hot industry. A lot of these stocks have given up the gains. My Chapel Trust owns MasterCard, but this is a nice small spec that's come down a lot. Let's go to Jack in Ohio. Jack!
0: Hey, thanks for helping me out with my stuff again, Jimmy. Absolutely.
1: It's had a little run-up in the past month or so. Do you think it's too late to add more shares to my holding? One oh oh No, no, no. Uh, the CFO there, uh, Walter Holtz is an old friend of mine. He's absolutely fantastic and neighbor, and I think that they do a great job. And while I'm at it, Walt, how you been? Okay, let's go to Tim in Florida. Tim. Hey, good evening, Jim. Just wanted to get your thoughts on the recent pullback. And Motorola Solutions down over four percent. Communication today. infrastructure play that I absolutely like, but I remember it's it's right now caught up in a, in the same kind of rotation that I've been talking about at the top of the show. Let's go to Thomas in New York. Thomas, yes, yeah, how are you doing? All right, how about you? Uh, not bad. I was calling McGarrick to Anthem and the healthcare. uh, uh so I was talking to Bill Enright, who does fantasy bull market with me. And it, it is really bull market fantasy is kind of fun because when I do it with Bill, he asks me about stocks. I ask him about players. And here's what I said to him after. I said, this stock, watch Anthem. Anthem is bottoming and so is United Health, which is owned by my travel trust. And, um, you know, bull market fantasy is a lot of fun. Wait a second. Let's go to Ed in New York. Ed.
0: Good evening, Professor Kramer. Booyah. My
1: stock is Fly Digital, APPS, please. Oh, man, stumped again. The second day in a row I've been stumped. I don't know these guys. How's that Apple doing? executive producer's knocking, knocking down bell, ringing everything. It's crazy. Donna in Texas. Donna. Hello. Hey, Just Donna. Oh, yeah, Jim. Oh, yeah. Here's my question. I own Kennedy Wilson. It has a great dividend with half of the return of capital. It right. only taxed on approximately half of the dividend. They can continue to do interesting things with their two unique business models.
2: And it closed up today. Should I hold, buy, or sell Kennedy Well,
1: they Wilson? had some great commercial properties. I've known them for a very, very long time. I remember when they actually started. And I think you got a winner there. I'm okay with it. Let's go to Jerry in Florida. Jerry! Yeah. Jar, what's up? Good evening. Uh, Good evening. Question regarding Heiko, H-E-I. It seems like it's been a steady, good grower. It's good right now. I mean, it's people rotating out of the high-end airline stocks. Uh, You know what? What can I say? It's a rotation, but you're right. It's a good company. I need to go to Ashwin in California. Ashwin.
2: Hey, Jim. Thank you for taking my call, and I appreciate all your insights and your expertise. Um, uh, My quick question was on Schlumberger. A
1: question about SLB, what are your thoughts, please? Um, my capital trust owns it, I, it's been a bad stock, and I, I've I, I've gotten hurt in it. I don't want you in it. I know that there was a nice uh, upgrade today, but I don't trust it anymore. I got new management. The dividend's good, but I don't want to hurt people, and I, I've i hurt my capital trust with that one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
0: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: we joke around about millennials, that generation born between 1981 and 1996, we do it pretty constantly on the show. But for all the kidding around about how feckless and fickle they are, what really matters is they are the future. If you're a consumer brand manager, your job is to win the millennials over because sooner or later, they are going to inherit the earth. There's no point in trying to appeal to baby boomers like yours truly. People in my age group, we're already set in our ways. We know what we're going to buy. For an advertiser, millennials are right in the sweet spot. Old enough to have jobs, but still young enough to be impressionable. So what do millennials want? Well, other than the Apple iPhone and the Apple wearables, including today, the ones that just sent the stock soaring, it can be tough to figure out. The average millennial makes around 35 G's a year, has 40 G's in student debt. They're slow to start families having kids a luxury these days and fast to say that they're stretched to the limit. On behalf of all baby boomers, I want to apologize to everyone under the age of 40. I don't know what precisely went wrong, but it sure seems like my generation dropped the ball here. Actually, you know what? Hey, let's pin the blame on Generation X. They can use some attention. Anyway, I bring all this up because yesterday I saw up and close what the combination of low salaries and high student loan payments means for millennials. It means they want bargains, and they get those bargains at dollar stores all over America. Yesterday, we paid a visit to revitalize Family Dollar Store with Gary Feldman, CEO of its parent company, Dollar Tree. He drove this point home while we went aisle to aisle after our interview. This location is in a popular area for millennials, something I know because the beach house my daughter expropriated from me is nearby. Dollar Tree has more than 14,000 locations, Dollar General. They they got uh, $15,000. Both of these are putting up new stores aggressively. Why? Because millennials love dollar stores. Think about it. Fewer and fewer millennials own cars. That's the Uber factor. So they prefer to shop somewhere close. Nearly all millennials shop with their smartphones in hands. Many price check everything. They have no brand loyalty. They're ingredient lookers. My eyes are so bad, I can't even see that fine print, but they worship at the temple of fine print. Because they look at what's in the bag or the box, they know that the big national brands are overpriced, so they happily buy the knockoff lookalike. Like store brands and a nearby dollar store. Convenience, bargains, saving time. That's what this generation wants. Now, while lots of companies have tried to lay claim to the millennials, most of them turn out to be blowing smoke. The cruise ship industry has forever touted their millennial customers because of the Instagrammable nature of a cruise. It's a great backdrop for photos, I'll admit that. But the cruise lines have been raising prices to please Wall Street. I wonder whether they've lost the bargain aspect. Remember glamping? There was a time when that was supposed to be the next big thing for the younger generation. Camping World and Thor, two companies that cater to the outdoor crowd, built up a ton of inventory in part to meet all the millennial demand. Well apparently the demand didn't materialize or else, well I don't know, I mean, those stocks have become dogs. Nobody ever wants to admit to losing the millennial consumer, although it clearly has happened. Uh, so who still has it? We've seen a dramatic expan- expansion in at-home dining, courtesy of Grubhub, DoorDash, Postmates, and Uber Eats, but there's a lot of competition in the food delivery space, not recommending them. Video games still resonate. Take-Two Interactive is the one. Again, it's all about convenience and bargains. You can spend 60 bucks, download a game, and get 100, 100 hours of entertainment out of it. Frankly, I wish I'd never had to figure it out any of these companies. But when you look at the anemic growth of old brands or new ones that had the younger cohort but then lost them, well, you need a rubric for what the millennials want. And you know what? I just gave it to you. Stick with Kramer.
0: Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus, special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors.
1: The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is...
0: It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com.
1: Once again, Apple said a lot of good things. The Apple TV, the right price point, the Apple Watch. I'll get the new one, the Apple 11. I don't know. I mean, I've got a. An 8, my daughter took the 10. But all I can tell you is the expectations were low and the stock went higher. I expect some crowd followers to bump their price targets tomorrow. I also expect the usual naysayers to say, eh, you know what, Tim Cook, his best days are, I'm not even going to complete the sentence. Like I said, there's always a bull market summer. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow.
0: At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account, U.S. equity, and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee and some account types and securities excluded. See fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC.